pageant, in which three young magi journey up the aisle of our church with large Christmas-wrapped packages, arguing about whether or not they are lost, and whether or not they ought to have eaten sushi the previous night. Because really, who orders sushi in the desert? Of the four Gospels, only Matthew mentions the wise men. And Matthew doesn't really tell us much. We don't actually know how many magi there were, or what their names were, or how old Jesus was when they arrived. A Greek manuscript from Alexandria, circa 500 AD, gives us names for the magi. Malchior, Balthazar, Caspar. Tradition tells us that they were a diverse lot, from Persia, India, and Ethiopia. And our nativity plumps them into the stable scene soon after the shepherds have come to witness the baby Christ. But none of these narratives are actually strictly scriptural. There are, of course, schools of thought that assume the story of the wise men was inserted at a later date to support the claim that Jesus was the fulfillment of Hebrew scripture prophecies. And there are schools of thought movements, even, that work to prove the scientific evidence of the existence of the star of Bethlehem and the reality of the Magi at the birthplace of Christ. All of this leaves us wondering what really happened. The other day I heard someone say something along the lines of this, God doesn't deal with clarifying information and facts, but rather with the longing of our hearts. And this helps me a great deal in the face of such incomplete historical information. What are the longings of the heart that the mysterious magi speak to? My heart longs to know that the universe reacted to the birth of Christ, sending a guiding star and prestigious witnesses through whom we can vicariously kneel down before an infant God and offer ourselves our gifts and our prayers. It is said that the wise men were the first to kneel before God, effectively starting Eastern and Western traditions of kneeling in prayer. There is a longing and need to be able to do as they did, and kneel and worship Christ in the dusty, smelly, very real time and place of his birth. This is a longing for a tangible experience of faith, and also for something that transcends the everyday grind of life here and now. We live in a hustle and bustle world, far from the reality of these mystical magi who kneel before the cradle of Christ. We are consumed in the life we live, here and now with the flesh and blood people who we are in relationship with, and the responsibilities that often seem to fall outside the realm of our faith. Perhaps one of the deepest longings of my heart has to do with wanting to know that God is with me, and I am in relationship with God, even when life takes me away from overtly spiritual endeavors. Which is why the Magi story I am most drawn to is one written by Henry Van Dyke in 1899. The 
story called The Other Wise Men. And it is a fable to add to all of our other sacred imaginings about who the Magi were. I first heard the story when I was about 10 years old. My mother used to read to us on our six-hour drive to upstate New York each Christmas to see her parents. And the book that she brought in the car one year was this particular treasure. There was, according to Van Dyke, a fourth magi, a fourth astronomer, sorcerer, wise man, who, like his colleagues in various parts of the known world, also witnessed the star at its rising that proclaimed the birth of the Messiah. The fourth wise man's name was Artaban. Artaban sold his home and his possessions, bought three precious gems as a gift for the Christ child, and began his journey to rendezvous with the other Magi, and then goes to Paris, and then goes to Bethlehem. Along the way, he came upon a dying man on the road. Magi are also physicians, so he stayed with the man and nursed him back to health. Artaban thus missed the caravan to Bethlehem. He came to a town in the desert where he sold one of his three gems and bought camels and supplies to make the journey on his own. But because of the delay, by the time he arrived in Bethlehem, Herod's soldiers were already there, hunting down all the male babies in hopes of destroying the one who was perceived to be a threat to Herod's throne. Following the sound of a lullaby, Artaban stumbled upon the home of a young mother and her baby. She told him that he had missed the Holy Family and the other Magi who had all left town, fleeing Herod's soldiers. In that moment, the soldiers tried to come into the home where Artaban and the mother and the baby were hiding. Artaban used his second gem to bribe the soldiers that baby alive. Then he continued his journey to Egypt in search of the Messiah. He never did come face to face with Christ, but he spent the rest of his life looking for him. Finally, he came to Jerusalem on the day that Christ was crucified. He had carried his last gem for 33 years, hoping to present it to Jesus. But before he could reach his goal, a slave girl ran by, pursued by her masters. He used his last gem to buy her fuel. And then an earthquake shook the land and caused a stone to fly off of a nearby building, hitting Artaban in the head and killing him. He died in the arms of the slave girl bemoaning the fact that he had not found Jesus. In his dying moments, he apologized to Christ for failing to reach him, and Christ's voice came to him, assuring him that he had indeed met him and bestowed gifts upon him each time he met and gave to those most in need. Artaban is up. He is us when life throws us curveballs, or when we can't seem to get out from under the demands of life and family and work in order to find ourselves in a deeply spiritual experience. Through 
Artaban's story. We hear Christ's voice telling us that we are with him, and he is with us in the unexpected changes in plans, and in the everyday journeys that we travel, which don't necessarily include the fame and prestige and glory that Balthazar, Balthazar, and Caspar enjoyed. So who were the wise men, really? Where were they from? How many of them were there? What were their names? Maybe it doesn't matter in the factual sense. Maybe it is true that God doesn't deal in facts and information, but that God deals in sacred stories and imagination, vehicles with which we express the longings of our hearts. Perhaps in the realities of our everyday context, and in the limitations of our human experience, stories like these, however historically accurate they are or are not, serve to illuminate the magic of the very real presence of God, woven through all that we are and all that we do.